Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Uh, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason's all sort of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972 with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hey, Guy. Hello, Gary. It's been a fun week, hasn't it? We've been back at work. We have been back at work. It's been a great fun week. Yes, rehearsing, playing music in a big cold room. <laughs> it sounded so good. To That sound of you playing bass with Nick on the drums... And realising that that is the Pink Floyd rhythm section since 1987? Seven, yeah. Yeah, and and the sound of it is just like, it just immediately sounds like Pulse and everything that we've all loved about Floyd. And and then I'm thinking, oh my God, and I'm the guy who's playing guitar in here as well, (laughs) along with Lee, obviously. And it's been been thrilling. It has been absolutely thrilling. It's great. Everyone's pulled together. No, it's just a joy. Man, it's been so long. And I'm sure there's so many musicians um, out there all sort of going through the same thing, just finally getting back to some semblance of something. Well, I think our artist today will will be one of those because she had an incredible album come out this year. Yeah, really, really, really good. I must say, she is brilliant. And in fact, incredibly accomplished artist. And all sorts of stuff she does. All sorts of collaborations, written a book. Absolutely. And she goes under the name of the anchoress for these last two albums she's written. And incredibly personal stuff. The Art of Losing has been sort of five-star album Yeah, lauded. Very, very lauded. Elton John singing her praises. I think he had her on his show uh, recently as well. Do you know, quite often on our show, we are going back to the 70s and 80s and talking about an artist's golden period. And it's really nice to have an artist on who's burgeoning. That's right. Absolutely. Yes. It's, it's, yes, it's also nice to hear you use the word burgeoning, because I don't know if I've ever heard you say that before. No, I know you mean, but this is someone who's still very much looking forward rather than looking back, which is great. I tell you what you have heard me say. What? Welcome to the Rock on Tours. 
Okay, guys, I'm ready. This was great, guys. I, I, it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. That's well, a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. I know you're musicians, but you've been more professional than a lot of journalists. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on. Hello. You know, just before we get on to this latest album of yours, The Art of Losing, I just want to say... The Very brilliant album. Oh, my God. And, yeah, and I say... It my favourite album of, of this year but I need to we're all behind Elton John in that and and every <laughs> other major artist who loves this album it's an extraordinary piece of work yeah we're jumping on your bandwagon I'm afraid well, I literally so- just found out as well I just got an email from the editor at Prog Magazine sending me a preview of the new issue that comes out on Friday and it's uh, their album of the year so that's a pretty <laughs> above, Stephen, above Stephen Wilson no less which is just like wow that, I mean that just doesn't happen the world has turned upside down is we're this all going, Jerry Ewing yeah the, I, you know what and we, we mention no matter what artist we always mention one yeah. word don't we guy the P word the P word always comes up and it's brilliant you came up with it first and what's great is because with the source full of secrets you know because our basic sort of you know the, the ecosphere we inhabit seems to be prog so the prog awards are the, the only one we get invited to so that's great that you're getting that one <laughs> The only awards you get invited to, something is wrong in the world yes. there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I saw last year that you did, I think it was last year, maybe the year before now, I've, I've lost track of time with everything going on. You did a whole thing on Radio 6 with one of my mates, actually, John Sim, who, who I've acted with in the past and, and lovely man, about the Beatles' White Album. The- yes, they let us talk for three and a half hours on Six Music wanging on about the white album basically i mean what other station would let you do that that was it was probably like two and a half years ago now because i haven't left the house for two years but yeah it was incredible that was just you know getting to geek out about your favorite kind of beatles facts with other people that know just as much about it as you do and trying to kind of out nerd each other it was brilliant do you know i am the egg pod do you know that beatles podcast do you know what i listened to a lot of that when i was doing my research and trying to swat up and trying to think oh god they're all going to know more than me yeah no because yeah. i did i did abbey road on it and i suddenly realized everyone listening to this knows a hundred times more about abbey road than i do <laughs> yeah <laughs> well, it's a bit like it's a bit like guy and i playing in nick mason's pink floyd version band you know is that most of the audience know more about the songs we're playing than we do you know but now, the reason I mentioned it is obviously, you know, we, this is probably going to come out after Get Back hits televisions, but hugely excited. Guy and I went to see a special screening last week that Macca was at and we saw a hundred minutes of it. And if you're a fan... It's too much. It's, storm- it's-, it's too much to take, frankly. I am a bit of a fan. I think it's the sort of thing that I'm going to cry at. So did you... Were you asked what album you wanted to talk about when you did that white album? No, it, it was the kind of white album. I can't remember which anniversary it was. You know, one of the big anniversaries. And I think they were, they were looking to diversify the room <laughs> and not be, you know, kind of four white blokes talking about the Beatles. 
And I think, you know, everybody knew that I was a bit of a nerd. And yeah, they asked me. God knows why they asked me. But yeah, was... but I heard it. And it's like all the blokes are going, oh, I just love that track. Yeah, it's great. And it? Yeah, I love it. I love it. And then you're comparing it to some great masterwork and explaining the musicology of it and real you radio know, force my, my stuff. Best, my best moment was John Harris, who's written obviously so many great oh, books yeah. about the Beatles. Knowing a Beatles fact that John Harris didn't know about how Blackbird was written, I think it was. That was just like... Yeah, I was like, yeah. What is what's, the, what's the fact? What's the fact? <laughs> I think it was when I was talking about how McCartney was sitting uh, in his flat and there were all the kind of fans outside and he first played Blackbird to them out the window. And I think John was like, I didn't know that, didn't they? I was like, I found something wow. that you didn't know about the Beatles. Is that possible? <laughs> Brilliant. That's extraordinary. This would be your second Prog Award. You know, I don't know whether you're allowed to announce it. Are we going to have to edit this out of the show? Well, it's in the magazine. It's not, because obviously they haven't had an awards this year. Because yeah. your first Anchoress album was, you know, Confessions of a, of a Romance Novelist. You got a Prog Award for Best Newcomer, didn't you? Yeah, that was pretty surprising. Because well, I didn't even know it was Prog, really. Really? Well, I, yeah. I, yeah, I, we, I only found out that you were prog from you being lauded <laughs> by the prog sort of magazine community. <laughs> I mean, we can have a long, long discussion about the definition of prog, can't we? I think I'm prog in so far as it's, you know, progressive. And if Peter Gabriel and Kate Bush are prog, then I'm prog. You know, it's art rock. It's, it's, it's art rock. That's, yeah. Time signatures and segues and complex structures and seven-minute tracks. It's all of that, but it's not prog as in... Well, I did wear a cape to the Prog Awards, actually. (laughs) I tick all the boxes, basically. I think that's what the definition really is. And your music obviously encapsulates it. There's a cinematic quality to what you do. There's sort of atmosphere. You're not afraid to use folk instruments or classical instruments, baroque is another term you might want to use. But all of these are sort of devices for you to express your your ideas. And is it something you'd build up as a tapestry on your in your computer and then suddenly find a song landing on top of? Or do they spring out of the lyrical, melodic ideas initially? No, everything's written on piano or guitar. So there's an expanded edition of the record actually coming out next year. And on that are five versions of songs that are literally stripped back to the bare bones. That's me on the Wurlitzer or on the piano or on the guitar with the vocal. And I always write like that. I, I don't write into my DAW or whatever people call it. I call them DAWs. Uh, I don't write into, into your computer. computer. Yeah. It's digital audio workstation for our for listeners. <laughs> or door, yeah. as door. some people say. And when you say that, people are like, I write into my door. I often write on the door. <laughs> I walk into my door. <laughs> but no, I don't. Yeah. I'm still a bit, I'm, I'm so old fashioned. I still believe that, you know, if it, for a song to really work, it's got to work just with you and the single instrument. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you just... I mean, I may change my mind further down, you know, ask me on album five when I'm kind of indulging myself with the latest plug-in bundle. But no, I'm still mm-hmm. a, an old-fashioned songwriter when it comes to just sitting down and uh, doing it that way, really. Also, the other thing that's the shame about modern album making is I've been trying to find sort of proper credits, Burek, for who played what, and it's... I can't find it. Or did, so did you play everything? Oh my goodness, let me grab my little CD. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's because he's just streaming, you see. He's a streaming kind of guy now. You and can't he's looking find at- proper credits. So yeah, basically written and produced by me. I played everything apart from the bass and, and the drums on it. We had Sterling Campbell, um, David Bowie. You're kidding, drummer. Sterling, who, who actually played for Spanner for a bit because I is introduced he? him to Gary. 
Yeah, the lovely there Sterling played the drums lovely for me. Sterling, yeah. And then I had Beau Bernard playing bass for me. But everything else was just, yeah, me twiddling knobs in, in my studio, really. Um, There's a very tasty bass, by the way. That is something I did notice. He's great. Mm. He, he is he, he is a very, very, very talented bass player. What about the sort of the, the orchestration uh, on sort of stuff like Unravel? So that, oh, obviously I didn't play the cello on that, but it was all, um, I actually arranged that weirdly on, on the keyboard. Odd way of doing it. Right, right, and, right. And would right. play it too. So I had one cellist in the studio with me and then kind of layered it up piece by piece. So I didn't have an actual quartet with me. Everything yeah. I do is pretty unconventional. <laughs> Just want to tell people about Sterling while we were still thinking about Sterling Campbell. For anyone who doesn't know who he is, he's an amazing drummer. He played with Bowie and his band for about 15 years, right? And then he played with Spandau for a, for a one tour because John was very sick. Uh, this is a he few also years played back. for Duran. I was about to say he was in Duran, wasn't he, I think? But I met him yeah. from through the B fifty two. So I was oh, in right, Simple, Mar- Simple Minds for four years. And we were over in Australia doing kind of joint shows with the B fifty twos. This I think it was like summer of twenty sixteen. I can't remember when it was. It's all a blur. And that's when I met Sterling and he was one of the few other people that didn't drink. So we often hung out, you know, you know, having a kind of smoothie or a kind of vegan salad or something and we you know just we really clicked so we were just very much on the same wavelength and then uh, i'm very good mates with his best friend mario mcnulty who is obviously another bowie collaborator as well so yeah it just was when i did bring people in on the record and that wasn't often for the art of losing it was something i wanted to do alone it was a kind of natural circle of friends that that i'd made and people that i knew i could kind of trust with the material because it's such a personal and difficult album I don't think I could have sort of reached out to people I hadn't worked with before or didn't know wouldn't be sensitive to it and, and what I was kind of mm. processing, if, if that makes sense. Mm. So, yeah, bringing Sterling in was, was sort of quite a natural. And James Dean Bradfield obviously played on the record from the Mannix. And I know you're a massive Mannix fan, weren't you? <laughs> I was calling in a favour from him because I'd sung on their previous album, Resistance is Futile. We'd done a duet together. And it was sort of always an unwritten rule that he was going to kind of pay me back. But he'd also just been a really good friend to me during that time and would call me up and just check in with me, you know, see how things were. And, and again, so it was somebody I trusted who understood what I was going through. And um, yeah, he just seemed like an obvious choice when it came to the song that we did together, The Exchange, which is about kind of toxic dynamics, that he would be the other voice on that. And he did an amazing job. And I did cry when I first heard his vocal in the mix. It was quite a moment it's wow, yeah. wow. And was it all remotely done it was with james yeah because i was most of the time when i was kind of making the record it was sort of in snatched sections between you know being on tour in europe with the mines or you know come back and do like a couple of weeks so diaries were just never lined up and sterling did his remotely from new york his drums which was just you know I was well ahead of the curve here before lockdown. <laughs> How to make a record never being in the room with someone else. The bass was done. Bo did come in to do that in person and the, and the strings were in person. But apart from that, it was, it was quite a solitary exercise, really. How did your Simple Minds, th- how did you come up to be working with them? So the Simple Minds kind of gig, as it were, came about through another collaboration that I did a few years previously called The Dark Flowers. So it was a bit of a super group. Um, It was brought together by this producer called Paul Statham. I've worked with Paul. Everybody knows Paul. 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, done, I wrote a couple of songs for someone with Paul. Yeah. He, he's brilliant. And and so it was like Pete Murphy from Bauhaus, Jim from Simple Minds, Shelley Poole from Alicia's Attic, Kate Havnovich. That's a weird combination of sort of goth pop. It, well, it's a goth country record. I wrote a couple of tracks for that. This was right back at the beginning. I was still at university. And my manager sort of, I think he was friends with, with Paul Stason or something. And it was sort of like a kind of quid pro quo thing. I was a bit sort of like, I don't really like country. I don't ever want to do it. And then I thought, he seems really nice. I'll give it a go. And then obviously out of that comes the big turning point for me, which is joining Simple Minds. So it's uh, so you would, yeah, a bit of a serendipitous moment, really. Yeah. So you would have toured with Cherise, wouldn't you? Didn't you? Cherise playing drums? Yes. yes. Me and Cherise have spent a lot of time. In a tour bus Shall together. Should to say, I toured with her, uh, with Brian Ferry. So you also know Sarah Brown as well, then, I certainly probably. do know Sarah Brown. Guy knows everybody, basically. Except Paul Statham, I'm um, feeling very left out here. <laughs> <laughs> so you play keyboards with Simple Well, I, start, I started out kind of playing additional guitar and some vocals, because it was kind of the rock record that they'd done, Big Music, which was quite a dark rock record. Oh, yeah, I know. And then I kind of transitioned over time to sort of be behind, you know, the racks of keyboards, and there was a few lineup changes. But yeah, it was just like, basically like going to musical university for me, baptism by fire, you know, to go from, before that I'd kind of been playing, you know, like maybe 500 cap venues. And then I think my first show with them was 8,000 people in Lisbon. And then it was like arenas. It was just a bit like, what? <laughs> I, I want to get deeper into Art of Losing, but we'll wait yeah. on that. I did find it interesting that the two big rock bands are associated are both ones with very, very strong national identities, Scottish and Welsh. All the Celts keep together. Yeah. That's what it is. Exactly, yeah. but, but having read some of your biogs and stuff, I, it was only like 10 days that you were actually in Wales for. No, I mean, it, it was about eight, eight weeks of my life, you know, my, my early life. We went out to Australia after that a very peripatetic existence sort of for the first few years of my life. Do you remember any of that? Because you came back when you were four or something, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, I, I remember... Do you remember kangaroos or anything like that? I remember breaking my leg. I broke my leg when I was two and a half. Um, That's kind of my earliest memory. Um, And the vicar trying to drown me at my christening, so I was about two then. They do say if you've had trauma, like your memory starts quite early, and those are my two big... Wow. Earliest memories. Yeah, yeah. But, but I tell you what mine was. I had a little toy bagatelle thing, you know, tiny little thing, and it burst. And the little ball went up my nostril. I don't know how. <laughs> I put it up there, I think. And I could get it out. And that was my earliest memory, going to the doctors. And he just got a little bit of wire and hooked it out. <laughs> but where did music start in your life? Well, Catherine? I think it is from those very earliest points. Music was always a big part of my, my house. We didn't really do TV. My mum was a bit kind of anti-TV. So we had records on all the time and music on all the time. And I mean, constantly. Still today, it's like if my mum's at my house, the radio is on all the time. So my mum kind of loves The Carpenters, John Denver, Elton John, you know, just kind of like classic song, like Carole King's Tapestry is probably her favourite record. And I got to take her to see that Hyde Park a few years ago, which was just amazing. She, she cried the whole way through. But what's interesting about that is it's autobiographical singer-songwriters, which you've become. Yeah, obviously. and then my dad, Rick Wakeman, Tubular Bells, you know, kind of slightly more kind of rock prog side of things. Um, <laughs> you were mapped out, weren't you? You were just, it was completely mapped out for you. <laughs> Simon and Garfunkel as well, Beatles, obviously. I remember, I must have been about probably three or something. And me and my sister used to make these forts in the living room and just put music on really loudly and cry. We put sad songs on. We just loved... Gary and I still do that sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) 
I remember lying down putting Bowie's Aladdin Sane on and time, the guitar part at the end, the Mick Ronson part, when my parents were out, I'd turn the lights off and I would cry to that. It was music just was already, I was already learning, as we all have, I'm sure, how it stirs us emotionally. Yeah, I was really hooked on that. Like Bridge Over Troubled Water was like my favourite song, probably when I was about five. And I just loved the way it made me feel, even though it made me feel sad, which is really a bit sad when I think about it now. But yeah, it was. I was hooked on sad songs. Karen Carpenter as well. I mean, I just, I mean, I could read music before I could read. I wow. just knew that I loved Was this through some sort of lesson or just yourself? Music. You just taught yourself to... Just myself. I was just... My, my sister's a, couple, a few years older than me, so she was kind of at school and, and learning stuff and everything she did, I wanted to do. And um, I think she started playing the recorder and the guitar and just I wanted to do what she did. So, yeah, I just we would sing in harmony together and, and do all of that. There's no musicality in my family. My, my mum and dad don't play anything. I was hooked. I just loved the way it made me feel in uh-huh. a bad way. Did I loved that, the bad feeling. On? Do you still? No. Well, the sad thing is, as soon as I so I didn't pick up the guitar probably till I was about fourteen. I started out. My first instrument is the flute, so I picked that up when I was about eight, and very seriously studied it in this kind of crazy way that I do everything. What grade eight or something? It, it was like in about two years. Um, I was playing in like youth orchestras and stuff like that, and then I got bored of it. And picked up the guitar because I stole my sister's guitar and she was learning and had lessons and been doing it for years. And then within about two weeks, I was almost as good as her. And she, I feel so bad for my sister because it was like it was her thing and I took it from her. Literally. No, I feel so, we should have had her on instead. <laughs> so she doesn't really play anymore, which is really sad. Um, no, I'm yeah, I kind of took, yeah. literally stole her guitar and I guess took the thing that she loved doing from her. Have you said that publicly before or are we getting your sort of... I don't your... think I have, actually. <laughs> I feel really bad. Uh, I, I actually think we're at the Prog Awards you should get up and play Living in the Past <laughs> on the flute. That would... Re- everybody in that audience would just You know what, melt. this flute, on every album I've done, I've played the flute. On at least one track. I'm bringing it back. I'm making it cool again. <laughs> we had Ian Anderson on here a few yeah. weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about the piano? When did that start becoming part of your life as well? I didn't play the piano until I was at university. Um, I was talking about this earlier today, actually, to somebody. I used my student loan, got one from Argos, like a cheap keyboard from Argos, right. and started teaching myself. Stupid. Like I was living in halls and, you know, all these kids got which, like Which university were you at? Sorry. So I was at UCL in London. Oh, okay. Oh, my son you know, all, Yeah. It's a great place. But, you know, a lot of people, you know, very well educated, well brought up, all got their grade eight, you know, as, as, as is the way. And then there's me getting, you know, this kind of really crappy plastic keyboard from Argos. They're all laughing at me. Why are you trying to learn the keyboard? And I just... How mean. Got on with it. And I was terrible. Truly terrible. But did you start writing songs? How did that develop? Because that's the big jump, isn't it? When you, you know, you're moving away from playing other people's music. I mean, for me, it was more about recording. I was always very interested in recording. So for my 18th birthday, so before I, I left for uni, I got a multi-track recorder. My parents said, driving lessons or a multi-track, what do you want? And I still can't drive, so... <laughs> <laughs> Good choice there. And I, I was just wow. really fascinated by how records were made. And I don't know if it's because, you know, they were always playing vinyl at home and I was always reading, you know, the credits and just loved reading about, you know, who played what and who did the string arrangements. And so for me, I that was what I wanted to do. It wasn't really songwriting. It was 
I want to put records together. But I didn't really see any women doing that. Mm. So I thought, I, I don't know. I don't really think I thought I could do it at all, actually, well, to be honest. interesting you say that, yeah. It, it wasn't something on the cards for me. But I, I guess I sort of tentatively started writing while I was at uni, but I didn't sort of really tell anybody. I wouldn't even sing in front of my boyfriend at the time. It's just very sort of secretive about mm, it mm, and, until I recorded my first demos. And- you know, you deal with very real, very personal, very gritty, in some cases, stuff. And was that always how you were writing? Or- no, not at all. I think the first record, Confessions of a Romance Novelist, is almost the polar opposite. No. So the whole concept of the record was about fictitious confessions, you know. It was very much... Well, I've obviously consciously... fallen for them. I just assume it's all you. <laughs> yeah. No, the first record, I was consciously not wanting to write about myself and really wanting to put a barrier between myself and the listeners and construct these kind of fictional characters and these fictional experiences. And it, it's baffling to me that I then went on to make such a personal record because it, it was never something that I had thought that I wanted to do. I, I think I always was a little bit tired of the way that pe- whenever you said, oh that you made music as a woman that people assumed that it was confessional singer-songwriter music and I've always been a bit kind of like stubborn I guess in that way that I want to confound people's expectations <laughs> yeah because yeah. you've written a book yes well when this was is... this was this at university or yeah so while I was studying I was making my first album um just as a means really to be able to afford to stay in London so I got paid to do my PhD um was, what like, were you doing a PhD in so in literature. And right. then that became the book that came out, what I wrote my PhD on, which was gay poetry. It's the kind of easy way of putting it. Oh, hang on. So there is a connection there, isn't there? Because isn't the title from an Elizabeth Bishop poem? It is indeed. One yep. art. And, and she was a gay writer. Yeah. Right? Everything I do is connected together in this big web of stuff, always stealing from literature, stealing from film. And it, to me, it's never bizarre that I was studying while making the first record because I don't think the record would have sounded the way it did or the lyrics wouldn't be as they were were it not for studying they really kind of feed into each other I'm always doing more than one thing always but there's a lot especially with higher education generally the fact that because so many of the sort of bands from the 70s whatever 60s all went to art college and it was that and it was a lot of the stuff they were learning from visual artists that was feeding through so it's very interesting if you're studying literature that that's what's feeding through well i would have loved to have gone to art college i had a place but my parents said no because i was the first in my family to go to university and i think they were very keen i do something that might get me a job at the end of it so obviously mum is super thrilled now that i still don't have a job (laughs) a proper job (laughs) I was going to say, well, hang on, well, then, then why do they give you a choice between driving lessons and a You know, it's funny that you were talking about, um, it's not funny, uh, but, uh, you know, the point that you made about there being no sort of uh, women in the recording side of music is so true. I mean, yeah. you know, it was a, a, a male bastion and to a large extent still is, and I, I can't think of any female standalone producers that have come up through the engineering world. I mean, well, not there many. Are, obviously there are artists as well. That You know, there's Bjork and Kate Bush. It's just that we think of them as singers and yeah. they were my gateway, finally. Yeah, yeah. I think I meant sort of as engineers. I know there's a, there's a, there are a yeah. few now, but certainly when we were sort of doing our stuff in the 80s, we actually worked with the only one I knew at the time, which was uh, she married Elton John. Um, and I can't think what her name was. Renee. Renee. And Renee was uh, was an engineer at, uh, she engineered one of our, our records. But how do you feel? How do 
female artist feel walking into studios that seem to be dominated like a boys club mm. is that i mean it's not the most comfortable experience and you know i'm, I'm often well, I was often the only woman in the room when I was kind of doing my studio training, if you want to call it that. And you do have to adapt your behavior quite a bit and you kind of try and be one of the lads and, and you know, you're not truly being your authentic self, which I think definitely affects the art that you're making. And as I said, I don't think I could have made the art of losing in a room full of guys that I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. You know, I had some great experiences in studios too. You know, like I've had, had a real laugh and really obviously enjoyed that culture. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been drawn to it. Yes, it is so difficult. It's, I hate kind of, oh, what's the word? I don't like to kind of tarnish everyone with the same same brush. And it's it's just, you know, I've had some great experiences in studios and some really crappy ones as well. And it's, it's just people, isn't it, at the end of the day? But I'm, I'm deeply passionate about trying to get more women and gender minorities into studios because i think it's important that the spaces that people create in reflect the diversity of the people creating in them if that makes yeah. sense it's i mean the last few years there's quite a few uh, recording sessions i've done where finally the people i'm playing with the musicians i'm playing with are women it seems to be much more of a thing this is brilliant the, the two best drummers i've played with over the last few years have been been women and it's not, and, and it's it's just been noticeable by how absent that was before. Yeah, it's really, really nice. Yeah, Sharice is incredible, isn't she? She's just, yeah, she's fantastic. Oh. But there's, there's actually two others I've worked it's with. It's also um, interesting that it, rather than enter that sort of laddish world, and even, you know, I have to say, even I find it often disconcerting and laddish. You, you're going into a studio to sing about something really personal about what you're doing and, you know, the tape ops and everything, you know, it's difficult to perform in front of these guys sometimes. But it's interesting that you see you and St. Vincent have just thought, you know what, I'm just going to stay in my own studio, make my own music the way I want and not be distracted and not have to deal with any of that. I don't know whether that's got anything to do with it. But. It's a bit of a prince mentality as well, isn't it? Because actually thinking about that, Susan Rogers, I think is, was his engineer, wasn't wasn't oh, true yeah. for many years, but it's that mentality of, I think if you work as in a kind of auteur sort of frame of mind, often you just want the least distance between you and what you're doing. So it just makes the whole process for me much quicker if I can just operate the desk and do everything because I don't have to explain it to someone else. But a lot of that is, is, has been made possible by technology. It was a problem, wasn't it? It was very hard to record something properly all on your own. You know, if you want to keep up any sort of real creative flow. Yeah, the cost, like barrier to entry and things like that. But, you know, I know I have an incredibly, well, reasonably expensive amount of equipment thanks to, you know, doing Simple Minds. And, you know, I, I'm a big believer in investing in gear. I'm a massive gearhead and I love a lot of expensive vintage equipment. You know, I'm not one of these people that thinks that studios are dead, you know, and you can make it on your laptop. I, I still think there's a lot of creative possibility in the studio that we need to, if we can. I mean, a lot of studios are dying out and it's, it's a real shame. And I think it's going to change the way that record sounds possibly for the worst if we kind of let them go. Well, there's a bit of a paradox here with your career because I mean, obviously you thrive alone with a computer and a few instruments around you. You can make it all work. But I get the sense from you that actually you maybe wished you'd been born 20, 30 years earlier and been able to do that kind of magic that the Beatles and Kate Bush and Peter Gable were exploring and developing and doing in big studios. Yeah, I mean, I've been super lucky and you know, I've recorded at Abbey Road a bunch of times. I still do use those big studios for some aspects of 
putting the records together. You know, there are certain things that I will always do in the studio. It's difficult because it's like, I don't know that I would have had that opportunity. The great thing about the democratization of recording with the kind of the falling costs of technology is that you're not having to audition your techniques and skills in front of other people. And I think that does make it more likely as a woman that you're going to get on and do it yourself because you can fail alone, can't you? And Mm. no one's laughing at you. So it's difficult. Yes, I would love to have been around in those days, but also I probably wouldn't have had the opportunity to make a record. So, yeah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Oh, yeah, yeah. Difficult. Yeah, let's just talk a little bit about the kind of lyrical inspiration for Art of Losing, because obviously, you know, having read and heard you speak a lot about the album in the last few months, you know, it's quite a traumatic experience that you've been having in over a few years in your life that led you to want to write this album. And, uh, and by the way, for people out there who haven't heard the album, this might be an album about losing and trauma and grief, but it's pretty fast and upbeat at times as well, isn't it? I was going to say, don't put them off. Don't put them off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I hope that it's a real kind of celebration of life and, and joyfulness. And I really set myself the kind of task, I guess, of making a record that celebrated life in the midst of death and loss. And I didn't want it to be kind of somber. You know, Nick Cave's done that so well. And it's like not interested in doing what other people have already done brilliantly so I really didn't want it to be a downbeat record so it was like yeah death disco I've used that phrase a lot with people about it it's a death disco <laughs> it's hard to do Depeche Mode do it really well and that's why they were such a touchstone for the record too Talk Talk so I looked at all of the artists oh, that talk, do that talk, yeah. well like The Cure as well and immersed myself in their catalogue and just thought okay well how can I do something new how can I update this and sort of do my own version of this, which is to capture the joy in the midst of, of the darkness, I guess. Do you mind sort of just explaining like the kind of stuff that you were going through at the time? Yeah, so well, it was it was a battery of things, really. It began with my dad being diagnosed with a terminal brain tumour, not probable tumour, at the age of 59. Shortly afterwards, I experienced my first of many miscarriages. And then I was diagnosed myself with the early stages of cancer. And it was really just an onslaught of shit that was coming my way. And I had started making a record, a different record. And then all this stuff kind of started happening and it was just not possible to carry on writing that record because it wasn't 
you know, I don't think I could turn away any longer from the personal in the way that I had on the first album. It's a record, quite literally a record of what I was processing, you know, me trying to understand there's a key line on the title track, you know, what did you learn when life was unkind? Was there some purpose to losing my mind? And I think I was trying to understand what the meaning of it was, you know, why was I going through such pain? Was there something positive that I could take from it? I guess probably the existential crisis that a lot of people have when they lose their parents really young. Just me trying to work that out through songwriting. I'm and not- there's, sorry, yeah, sorry, because there was a very stark video you did for 5am. Yeah, so 5am is, is sort of, that kind of led me down other tangents into my past, I guess, into trauma and loss in my past. And that song addresses sexual assaults in my sort of teen, year, early teen years. And that was obviously something I'd not set out to write about at all. But in the process, I think, of trying to understand all this loss and grief in my life, I obviously necessarily found myself going back into the past as well. And so it became, I guess, the, the 14 tracks on the record, can't call them all songs, are an exploration of all the different facets of loss and grief that you can experience in life. You know, loss of friendship, loss of faith, loss of love as well. You know, it's not just about the literal loss of death and grief. Yeah, so I guess it kind of over time became this kind of big quilt, really, of all these different experiences that that I've had, but also the other people that I've had. And it was a massively healing part of making this record was did a podcast at the same time. Everyone's got a fucking podcast now, haven't they? (laughs) No one's got one like us, guy, have they? No, no. And I was chatting just to other people that had experienced extreme loss and grief. And God, was that incredible for me to do, just talking to other people who had come through it. And it was just so incredibly healing to realise in my solipsistic way that I wasn't the only one. You know, there Mm. are lots of people out there who are being the same or worse. That stage of, you know, I, I lost both my parents 10, 12 years ago and my son was born two weeks afterwards. And then there was this sort of, the sense that, you know, I'm next, you know, that this is the order of things and these are the events. It didn't make it any easier. It was still... That must have been incredibly... Oh. Confusing. Mm. But I read that Elizabeth Bishop poem, that you, the title of the album comes from, and there's something in it where she almost blames herself for all the things she loses in, you know, she's saying, you know, I lost my keys, you know, and it ends up, I lost my lover, you know, have lost everything. But it was kind of almost like it was something that she was doing. It was an art. Was there a sense of that going on with you? I mean, the poem resonated for me because it was the idea of repetition and what happens when you stack up so much loss, whether you can master it, can you get better at losing? And I almost had this perverse sense in my head that the more awful things happen, perhaps the better I could get at dealing with it, which sort of did happen in a way. Well, in a way of sort of being numbed by the sheer kind of regularity for me it was acquiring a really kind of bleak sense of black humor which is just Mm. my response to most things i I think that makes its way into the kind of lyrical content of the album too i hope people pick up on the humor of it especially in let it hurt the first song on the on the record i always try and laugh at the awful things that happen in the repetition of the loss came this kind of sense of laugh of the absurd with a pride your father must have felt if he'd known that out of all of this was going to come this incredible piece of work that will be forever there and is you know a legacy which you know ironically is also your 
legacy when you're gone is what we do as artists, isn't it? Well, that's that's sort of what I came to understand really was that the act of writing itself is the very act of, you know, like Dylan Thomas said, rage against the dying of the light. The, the mm-hmm. act of creating music and creating song is, is, is you trying to defy death. And that's what we all do probably as yeah. musicians, isn't it? We're all avoiding the inevitable by desperately trying to yeah. recreate ourselves in something that we hope will live on after us. Because it's also very serious. <laughs> Time for a joke. Because <laughs> there is that thing, isn't it? Because apparently you've got three generations. If, even if you're just, if you're an ordinary person, you've got three generations, then you're gone. You know, you're completely forgotten by your family and everything. But someone made an interesting point the other day that in the way that it wasn't, even Elvis isn't the cultural reference point that he used to be. I mean, somebody the other day didn't know who Paul McCartney was. I can't oh, remember. Oh, oh, I just, well, let's yeah. give up if people don't know who Paul McCartney is. It's an odd feeling for you, isn't it? That out, out of stuff that was bad, you know, you managed. Do you think that writing songs about issues that are breaking your heart, I'd like to think it works for me anyway, but I don't know about you, but is is you feel like in a way you've put it in a box and you're passing it over to someone else to have a look at and go, wow, that's me too. And you share the burden a bit and it relieves you of some of the pressure. Definitely, yeah. I think you know, the act of songwriting for me is about communion with other people. And it, it is that. In, in your listeners reflecting back to you and your fans reflecting back to you, that this has helped them or this reflects their experiences, it does. Some of the burden, the weight lifts slightly you share it around a bit. There's a quote inside of the CD from, um, I think it's Marcel Proust. It says it's so much better than I can. And it, it's something like... Find Who is it. he? What album did he release? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to find it. It's something about like, I. oh, here it is. I found it. Ideas come to us as the successors to grief and griefs at the moment when they change into ideas lose some part of their power to injure the heart. Brilliant. But isn't there also an element you think, I mean, it's a sort of closure thing. It's like you've expressed something, you've said something about it, and that's a way of putting a lid on it. And it's in that you're handing it over to other people here. Now you look at it. Yeah. Although I did sit on the album for a bit. I mean, I finished it in February 2018 or 19. I can't even remember. <laughs> and I remember sitting, listening to the master in a supermarket car park and just I was hysterical listening to it. I just couldn't listen to it. And I knew that I had to say it couldn't come out yet because I needed to be able to do interviews and I needed to be able to talk about it. And then obviously we all got hit by a worldwide pandemic. And, you know, it meant that the record was kind of sat on for almost two years before it came out. I had a shit ton of therapy. It was brilliant. Um, So I could talk about the record in a way that wasn't damaging to me. And it's... um, Hmm. Normally, an like a musician would hate for a record to be delayed, but and I was very frustrated at the time. But in hindsight, it was the best possible thing that could have happened. And I think people were really ready for it as well. You know, the label were just so unsure about what people would think. I think they were really nervous and a bit kind of this isn't going to do anything. And then I think I don't know if you remember around the time of of like the first lockdown and everyone was watching "I May Destroy You." Did you, I yeah. think oh, you yeah, saw yeah, that yeah, show? Yeah. Yeah. And I think because we're all being forced to like confront our own mortality, that every, there was just a bit more of an appetite for the darkness and 
for the record to come out at a time, I think, when people were just re- ready to hear it. Well, also, that, I mean, let's face it, everyone was sitting at home. I think people were in a position to pay attention to sort pay of attention, you know, new and stuff, to stuff in a way that they, you know, hadn't worked. Because usually. we're always breezing through tracks. I mean, you know, Adele yeah. the other day talked about, you know, I'm not a massive Adele fan. I have to put that out there. But, it, you know, the, what she said about the listening to the whole album, I, I thought was was real. I mean, I thought that was exactly, you know, and th- yeah. that's how you stitch your album together. That's why you're getting an award for an album. It's not just a bunch of songs. There's a through line. I'm the awkward bugger that did segues as well. So the tracks overlap. So Spotify, when they try to shuffle the record, get like little snippets of the end of the next track. So yeah, I just try to be awkward and say, well, you can't shuffle this because they all seamlessly blend into each other. <laughs> yeah, well, they have to have an album setting, don't they? Except for all the, <laughs> all the old Freud say, albums until, and everything. I, d- I didn't know mm-hmm. until Adele that it automatically shuffled. So I'm very grateful to her for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know, I think from my experience, Catherine, is that some of of the stuff you've experienced is there f- regardless of how many songs you end up writing about that stuff. That river still flows and will still work its way into anything you might write in the future. Different angles, different perspectives, different ways of looking at a particular story. But it's all, you know, this is the problem when, when you know, most pop stars find that they're writing their they're beginning their career when they're in their early 20s and they're writing their sort of like most famous hits when they're in their early 20s they have no experience at all (laughs) so it's a kind of cut and paste from other people's ideas and it's not until they're sort of past their career best that they're suddenly starting to experience reality I think that was a little bit like what it was like with my debut it was very much a collage of all the things that I loved you know it was a homage almost to Hounds of Love by Kate Bush and it was, you know, pick and mix of all the records that I loved and it even sounded like that. I listen back to it now and think it's nuts. It's like a jukebox, you know, it goes from like kind of funk jazz to piano um, <laughs> symphony. It's, it's just a really odd record. But that's it's, quite likely for a first album, isn't it? You just want to have a go on all the rides. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. You don't, know, yeah, if yeah. You don't so, yeah. know if you're ever going to make another one or get to make yeah. another one and... I made that record over such a long period. It was three years, you know, because I was doing it in downtime in the studio. So it was really just bitty and didn't hang together at all. Was- downtime in what studio? So it was in Hugh Padgham's studio, actually. Oh, you're kidding, Hugh, my neighbour. All oh, right. Is he your actual neighbour? He's my actual neighbour in London, yeah. He's about 50 yards from Which of your houses? He might remember me. <laughs> I bet you he'll remember me. Well, he, he probably won't, actually. But I'd like it to think that he I'll might remember me. I'll pop around and ask him. <laughs> was that a studio in where was it out in Chiswick way yeah Stanley House Stanley House yes yeah so I started annoying people just asking to come in you know and assist on sessions and just you'd be there for like downtime and yeah I ended up making a record over three years for people who don't know Hugh Padgham's one of the great producers who did The Police and Phil Collins did, and, yeah all the Phil Collins um, well he was actually the last of the it was incredible like it was he was the when they used to be house engineers when you booked a studio it had an engineer Right. Townhouse was that, and, they, and he was the house engineer at the townhouse, which is why he ended up doing things like the Derek and Clive album, and, stuff. Wow. and then he was literally the guy that. who happened to be on call when the drummer from Genesis was making his little solo album. Yeah, and, and came then, up with that drum sound, and then off we go. Yeah, uh, you know, we should talk about Bernard Butler. Yes, that was yes. Forgotten about that album. <laughs> yeah, I know, but it's just come out. It came out after. When did it come out? No, last it came year. It came out, out last year. About six months before the Art of Losing came out. But it had been made a long time before. We'd sat on that record for about five years because that was probably the very first thing I ever started when I was trying to sort of 
do something in music. Was the idea of you two to be a sort of like a McCalmont and Butler thing? I'm not too sure, to be honest. It was, as I say, one of the very first things I ever did. And it was like a bit of a development deal session that A&M, I think, put me in with, with him for a couple of days. I think they thought I might be like Duffy or something like that. Yeah, because he um, produced Duffy as well, didn't he? As well as being suede guitarist. And then obviously what we ended up doing was just nothing like what they wanted. <laughs> this kind of Roxy music inspired. Yeah, it's really great. Yeah, it's a great odds. We just sat down and I think the first day we wrote three songs. It was just nuts. And then we kept going. How did you write with Bernard? I mean, because he's got that very distinctive guitar sound, doesn't he, that we all know from the early Suede records. But And, and particularly Sabotage, which I loved that track. Yeah, I did. did actually play on a McCalmont and Butler song. Did you? Writing with Bernard was very odd, because obviously at this point, and usually I just tend to do everything myself. So it was very, I, I must confess, really awkward for me, because he wanted to do it in a very kind of Morrissey-Marr kind of way, where he would do the music and I would do the top line and the lyrics. And I was just, ah, I can't play anything. We did Judas. I had kind of written it on guitar and I was playing it to him in the room. And then I suddenly sat there and thought, I'm playing guitar in front of Bernard Butler. You look like a right tit, basically. <laughs> I mean, because he's so good. He's so brilliant. Yeah, and he's I'm, great, yeah. You know, an okay guitarist, but, you know, anyone's a shit guitarist compared to Bernard Butler. <laughs> it was well, embarrassing. Yeah, not anyone. <laughs> Johnny Marr. Johnny. No, Johnny yeah, Marr. Yeah, 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 well, yeah, Gary, yeah, he's yeah. not bad. Uh, no, 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 no. As we get all the reviews for the last tour, say Gary Kemp, who knew? <laughs> I feel bad now for saying. I, th- I guess I just kind of have this sense of him as just being such a virtuoso player, but also mm. he's got such a distinctive style of playing. Yeah, he has. It's yeah. like a once in a generation thing, isn't it? Really? Yeah. Mm. So we ended up writing this really weird, like I say, the Morrissey Mar way of he would kind of do something on the piano or on the guitar, and then I would literally be like, you know, just go away for an hour. And then you come back and that's it. We'd written it. Done. And it was all on tape. Pretty much most of those vocals were one take, straight wow. into, in the control room. Actually, that reminds me, I, did, I wanted to ask you this, because you produce your own vocals. I can't do that with myself. I can record guitars, I can do everything else. Comes to the vocals, I can't go emotional singer with my eyes shut and then back to the record button and stop, listen, edit. I just can't do that. Do you do that? Yeah, I mean, it's one of my favourite things to do is to edit anything. Because I'm autistic, so I have this kind of weird switch in my brain. I can be incredibly emotional and, and very overly sensitive. Or I can switch into almost being a little bit like a computer, I guess. And this is only my experience of being autistic, obviously not anyone else's. I love methodical, deeply engaging tasks that other people find incredibly boring. It's bliss for me. I don't think of yeah. that I'm editing my vocal. I think I'm editing... A voice and I've just become incredibly objective about what's crap and what needs to go and I love it. Is it different doing your voice do you think than to doing someone else's or are you that detached? I'm completely detached yeah. completely and there's no sort of embarrassment about something being a bum note or being out of tune I, I'm just very ruthless about it it's yeah I don't think of it as me at all and I, I absolutely love it send me your vocals to comp. <laughs> Do you know that's really because I had a period where I was producing records and I was I did a lot of co-productions and I realised that ultimately the reason I could never be a record producer is because I hate comping vocals. I can't stand it. And mm. it's my least favourite thing in the world. I'd mm. rather paint the house. <laughs> 
Right, right. So, yeah. um, you lost that job. Yeah. Send them my way. Honestly, it, I find it so soothing and so relaxing. There is nothing that I would rather do. Oh, brilliant. Oh, I've got a bin full here. Because um, in the old days, you know, I need to explain this to people who, don't, who you know, don't do computer music or anything, is, you know, you can get the music and you can, you can, you can cut into the vocal at any point and you can mess with it, you can retune it, you can do that, or you can get another vocal from another take and slot that in right down to the syllable even the plosive and of course all that was done on tape wasn't it guy when we were yeah and it, yeah back it was in the literally days like, like razor blades and blocks and, and, and if you listen, graph marks and if you get a chance to listen to any great vocal out there on a sort of mixed track you know you can hear the cuts and the jumps that are done with a razor blade and sellotape yeah a lot of the engineers i've worked with over the years would, would obviously they would still have been working on tape you know in the kind of 90s and they would talk me through you know what would have been done before and i think that's why i'm still quite kind of you know i'll only do three or four takes that's it I know a lot of people do a lot more um but, but the stuff with bernard was honestly he, and again maybe that's a throwback to him being used to working on tape but it was one take you're done. That's it, and that was excruciating for me as a perfectionist. And so, what about your your covers album? Is this the reprise one, or the ones yeah. I was doing over lockdown? Because I, I mean, I'm constantly doing covers to pass the time. No, there was a reprise <laughs> which I couldn't find online. Well, I heard one with Wild. I know you're, you're about to show yeah. me the 400 page sumptuous. No, you know what? That's never had a proper release because no. it was something that I kind of did when I was teaching myself how to record, basically. And again, it was, I think everything I do sort of has like a kind of purpose in terms of like trying to get a new skill or something like that, teaching myself something or getting a degree or something. And the covers that I was doing was, I guess it was teaching myself how to make records. It's a great show, very incredibly eclectic choice of artists. It's brilliant, I thought. Thank you. I'm trying to remember what's on it. I think it's um, obviously Wildest Wind, Nina Simone, David Bowie, depending upon, you like Fleetwood Mac, I think on there. Um, I'm just trying to think. Yes, Black Eyed Dog. But I got, it was so long ago since I did that. Um, I think the Carol King, he hit me and felt like a kiss is on there. Um, Catherine, how is your normal life? You know, because you're so controlled in the studio, so organised, so <laughs> brilliant at stitching all these ideas into something wonderful. Is, What's is, is normal that life? Carry what on is into, normal? Is that, is that out, you know, because is there chaos around you or does it, is that your general approach? I'm just trying to think. Um, I think I'm sort of quite normal i don't think i'm too i'm not very tidy i'm not particularly i like to be on time but i'm not but boy are you on top of disciplining yourself do you know where i think that comes from i think that comes from training to be a dancer so before i was obsessed with music as something what i wanted to do i was obsessed with ballet and i think what you learn is when you study ballet and i think that's what i've taken across doing my studies and to doing music is this idea that if you just chip away at something and you just apply yourself and you do it every day and you're just really strict with yourself you'll get there like perfection in ballet comes from the discipline of doing it every day and putting the hours in and I think I've I guess unconsciously applied that to all aspects in my life and like making a record for me is not about sitting and waiting for a moment of inspiration it's just getting on with it, putting the hours in and doing it. I just don't believe in inspiration. I just think everything is a bit like, and maybe it comes from my dad a bit because he was, he was into building <laughs> and he was always sort of talk about, you know, like building a house or bricklaying and you just put the time in and then suddenly you've got a house at the end of it. Or wow. Know. And it wins, it wins awards. <laughs> Do you still have your ballet chops? 
Have you got a plie? Yeah. Got a still got your plie? A little bit. Your... I mean, so, some of the music videos that I've made have kind of employed a bit of, of the dance, but I broke my back when I was 19, which is oh. why I picked up the piano. I started piano when I was kind of convalescing from that. So did you pick up the piano, and that's why you broke your back? I was going to say that's a good way to break <laughs> your back. It, it was kind of a distraction. Sorry, from real, sorry. Do you know what? It's, this is the black humour. I just laugh at it now because that was obviously not my path. You know, it was not meant to be for whatever reason. Slipped on the stairs, down like twenty concrete stairs. Hit everyone on the way down. Cracked my L four, L five, sacrum coccyx. It was, yeah, it was not meant to be for me. There were other things that life had planned. So at the time it was really difficult because it was what I'd wanted to do and all I could think about. But the music had always been there for me, but I never thought it was a career. And yeah, serendipity. And what about playing live? Are we going to be able to come and see you? What's happening? I am doing a tour in spring next year. I hate to say anything about plans at the moment because it's been postponed is it once or twice? I can't even remember at the moment. Because you were meant to go out supporting the, the Manics, weren't you? Yeah, I was supposed to support the Manics in September, October, but I was waiting for my booster because I'm clinically vulnerable. And the doctors just said to me, you can't do it. Not until you've got your third vaccine. So sadly, I had to pull out of that, which was one of the most disappointing things that's happened over the past few mm. years. And yeah, it was really hard really hard because I've always wanted to support them on a tour. I've only ever done the odd show with them here and there. Absolutely gutted. Still really sort actually am sore about that. And this is how artists make their money nowadays, of course, as well. You know, playing mm-hmm. live. I'm trying to think of, of a uh, diplomatic way to answer that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, if you're not a solo artist, you know, as a solo artist and you're employing all the set of musicians. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really tricky to break even for me. I think once you're over a sort of like a thousand capacity venues, sure. So you're taking a band out? So what band do you take with you when you go out? So the full shebang, so drums, bass, guitar. Cello, um, flute. I know your flute, of course. At least least you can cover the flute. Yeah, but, you know, obviously when you play everything on a record, it's really hard to do it live. So you've got to bring other people with you and that's costly. Mm. So, Mm. yeah, the reality of it is actually for a lot of young musicians, they're not making money out of live unless they're playing on their own. I think it's fine if you're a sort of acoustic singer-songwriter, but that's not what I am. Yeah. So, I've, you know, I've got to bring the expensive bands, unfortunately. You, not sound unfortunately really, but. you sound really sus because didn't you get some money from the Art Council to help with this album, make this album? Yes, so I did. Yeah, The Art of Losing was made partly with Arts Council funding. Um, who, who do we I write to? Amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, they've given it all to the Royal Opera House now, so I don't think there's anything left, but... <laughs> yeah. No, I am quite quite thing. sus, as you say. I'm I'm very interested in the business side of things. I do think as a musician now, you've got to be very clued up about how the sausages are made, if that's the right metaphor. Yes. You can't just yeah, focus no, on the like a, That's like a line out of succession, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I co-manage myself, which means I do 70% of the work. But I have a great understanding manager who lets me just take over and that's a big part that's I think, they're on co-managing themselves you know there's loads of women Jagger actually does. That do, Jagger. do it yeah there, there mm. are a lot of people I think if, and for me I love the business side of it too I find it really interesting it's like a game of chess with some people especially with labels isn't it you know yeah. all the manoeuvring because you're on a prog label aren't you 
I was, yeah. So I've actually finished up with my label deal now. So I'm currently a free agent, if anyone's interested. If anyone's listening, <laughs> if anyone's listening get in touch uh, with Rock on Tours and. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll be the agents. Take, uh, yeah, take 10%. We're also now co managing. What about a new album? What's, what's happening? Are you writing? Always writing, but. I'm just sort of seeing how it goes, I mean, because I'm in, obviously chatting to labels at the moment about what's going to happen next. Obviously could not have anticipated how successful the record was going to be. So I was sort of planning on, you know, when the deal came to the end, it was two album deals. So I knew I was going to be kind of, you know, free agent. I was thinking I would do it myself so I could have complete control, but I'm not so sure now that I've got the time to do it. So I don't know. The new record is a lot of vintage sense. I've acquired a lot over lockdown. Um, I don't know if you can see some of them. But. Uh, yeah, it can a bit, yes. It's, it's quite a quite tantalising, but it can't quite make anything out. It looks like an old Spandau Ballet lock-up from the 80s, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but the new record, I'm sure, will be synths and drum machines, partly because that's I'm sat here on my own and listening to lots of Depeche Mode still. And Talking of Depeche Mode, who's um, the lyricist uh, from Depeche Mode? I remember once... Martin. Martin famously, he once said he thinks he's got the record for the amount of time someone has used the word knees in lyrics. Which song is that? When all of them, he's always on his knees at some point. <laughs> is he begging, darling? Yes, exactly. Is he begging, begging darling, please? But he said no one's used the word knees as much as me. In the same way as Roger Waters uses the word steel an awful lot. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I hope I haven't depressed everybody too much. Oh, the album's very no. upbeat, I promise. This, so the album, it's, it's, we can't recommend the album enough massive yeah. massive album and congratulations on getting album of the year yes oh, thank richly you deserved thank you for having me um, I'm going to have to untangle all my wires now I'm trying not to strip <laughs> over them that was nice that was really nice more of a sort of weighty intimate artist chat than we perhaps usually have she's a very intelligent person yeah. you know and really bright and um God knows what she's doing talking to us. But, uh, you know, I, I just I feel like feel her, a bit thick. her music <laughs> is, it's sort of the Penguin classic version, you know. It should have come out with a black cover and a, yeah, and a Renaissance yeah, yeah, painting yeah. on the front, you know. It is so good, so beautiful. I know we've been, Guy and I have been discovering, doing a deep yeah. dive of hers in the last week and uh, can highly recommend go out and buy The Anchoress is the Art of Losing. Thank you, Guy. That was nice. We're um, desperately excited because we're going to be seeing the Beatles sing again yes, soon this weekend. Can't and, wait and for lots, that. lots yeah. of people have already seen it this week, I'm sure, because we are. We've recorded it early. Can't wait. And I'm going to see you back in rehearsals tomorrow morning. You are indeed. I can't wait. Good night from me. And it's good night from everybody. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.